Our last scripture of the morning is Psalm 145, and Pastor John is preaching on it this morning, and he asked me to politely ask you to listen up. There might be a quiz, not saying, so open your ears. Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all that he does. The Lord helps the fallen. He lifts those bent with their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear, them, fear him. He hears the, their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love him but he destroys the wicked. I will praise the Lord. May everyone on earth bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. When, when Rick asked me, a couple of weeks ago if I would preach today, I, I, I said, well, you know, Rick, you've been going through the Psalms. How about if I just do a Psalm? And he said, great. So I, I went to the lectionary to see what the Psalms were for today. There's usually two Psalms given as options on any given Sunday. And the two Psalms for today were Psalm 17 and Psalm 145. So I, I, I spent a couple of days reading through these two Psalms and, and somehow felt pulled towards Psalm 145. So that's the one that we're looking at today. I, I, I don't think it should surprise me that, that I was pulled toward this psalm because it's a compelling psalm. It, it's, a, it's an important psalm for a whole bunch of reasons. And I, I, I'd suggest you take your Red Pew Bible and turn to Psalm 145. Uh, what page is that? Who? 478, Psalm 145. Thank you. I was going to write that down, and I didn't. People have loved this psalm for 3,000 years, and that's no hyperbole whatsoever. 
And in Judaism, this psalm was read in many synagogues twice a day. It was read in the morning service and in the evening service in the synagogue. But the Talmud said that, that those who would read this psalm three times a day would have a special connection to eternal life. So there are synagogues in which it was read twice in the morning service and once in the evening service so that you could get it every day. Uh, in, in the medieval church, this psalm was, was recited as the noonday blessing. So this psalm has been used by God's people for 3,000 years in, in wonderful ways. Now, it's a powerful hymn, and, it, and it's deeply rich in spiritual content. And we could spend a couple of weeks in this psalm. But before we take a look at the psalm itself, it, it's, it's helpful to know something about it other than what we've already said, how it's structured. It, uh, it's one of the eight psalms in our Bible that's an acrostic psalm. Uh, David wrote five of those. Now, it doesn't show up in the English translation, but each line of an acrostic psalm begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Alpha, bet, gimel, or in English it would be A, B, C. And the first word in that line has to begin with that letter. So just write down the alphabet and then find a word for each letter and then make it into poetry. And you're just like David. Well, maybe not. I tried. I, I, I tried sitting down yesterday to do this. So I started A, B, C, D, E. And this is what I came up with. All, A for all. You can switch to that, Emily. All good people bring their Bibles to church on Sunday mornings, defining themselves as being excited to hear God speaking from its sacred pages with grace for all who can hear the divine message in the way it should be heard. And then I got stuck at just. I mean, I didn't get the Z yet, you know. What do you do with Z and X? And I got stuck. So just in time before lunch. See, it isn't really that difficult to take a letter of the alphabet and find a corresponding word, is it? But it is difficult to put it all together in something that makes sense. It's even more difficult to put it together in some way that resembles poetry. This doesn't, by the way. But what David wrote in Psalm 145 is a perfect example of Hebrew poetry. Now, another thing you might want to know about this lovely psalm that David wrote is that in the way the psalms are organized, it is the last of David's psalms. I know there's five more in the psalms, but 145 is the last psalm ascribed to David, the last one with his name on it. So this is, as it were, David's last words in the psalms. So they carry some weight for us. You know, we've been following David all through the psalms. Uh, not, not all the psalms by any mean are, means are his, but we, we spot his psalms. And some are written in times of distress, and some's in, in, in times of ecstasy. And, but we've followed him, and now we get to David's last words, his last message. So this is David's last word on, on worship, in my opinion. One of the ways that we can look at this psalm is actually an encouragement to us to be worshipers. And it's been calling people to worship for 3,000 years. Look at Psalm 145 in your Bible, and, and I'd like to look at the first verse and the last verse. 
Verse 1, I will exalt you, my God and my King, and praise your name forever and ever. And then the last verse, I will praise the Lord, and may everyone on earth bless his holy name forever and ever. Now, in between those two verses where David says, I am a worshiper, in between those, those two verses, he calls upon all creation and all people to join him in worship. Now, you, you maybe notice something in those verses, and this is very important to Hebrew poetry, and it's the rule of repetition, or the role of repetition, you might say. You see this in Proverbs as well. Most of us grew up thinking that poetry had to do with something like rhyming. You try to rhyme words. And again, that's not so hard, but, but it is a little more difficult if you want the words to make sense. But they, we, we think of rhyming as how you make poetry work. That's not how Hebrew poetry works at all. It works by repetition. So look again now at this. Verse 1, I exalt you, I praise you. He says the same thing twice. Verse 21, praise the Lord, bless his holy name. Repeats the same thing twice, just with slightly different words. It's foundational, though, not just to poetry, but it's foundational to this whole psalm. This whole psalm is based on repetition. There are two lines of thought in this psalm. Um, in this call to worship. And you, and you find it repeated twice. In verses 1 to 3, we're called to praise the Lord's kingship. Verses 4 to 9, we praise him because of his covenantal faithfulness. And then the next verses, verses 10 to 13, we praise him for his kingship. And then in verses 13 to 21, we praise him for his covenantal fidelity. And flick to the next one. So you see the repetition. So what's the next slide there? Yeah. You see, you see how it's covenantal faithfulness that's highlighted. So these, these are the themes. Praising God who is the king and praising the king because of his covenantal faithfulness. Those are the two themes of the psalm. By the way, outlining a psalm can be a very good way to understand it. If, you, if you're up against a psalm you can't figure out... Uh, do what you learned in elementary school and take a paper and pencil and just outline it. And look at the structure because it's poetry and it's got a structure and it's in that structure you begin to see the meaning. So we see his two themes and they're repeated. Now look at verse 3. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Now, this little verse is a doxology. You, you know the word doxology, you think. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's a doxology. It is not the doxology. It's not the only doxology. Doxology is from two words. Dox, meaning glory, and logia, meaning a saying or an expression. A doxology is simply a statement that we make about God's glory. It could be anything. Any statement made about God's glory is a doxology. This psalm is full of little short doxologies. That made me wonder. It's football season. The Bombers are actually winning this year. And, and you see, sometimes a, a fellow will score a touchdown. 
And everybody's jumping up and down. And he'll come across the line and he'll go like this. And I thought, is that a doxology? Well, if in his heart he's giving glory to God, that's, state, that's a statement and that's a doxology. So David begins with this doxology. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. We worship God because he is worthy. He's worthy of our praise. So worthy, in fact, that we can't begin to measure his worth. Well, we can begin, but we can never exhaust it. God is too great, too immense for us to know all of his worth. And, and this were a bit like the, the man that was healed by Jesus in the New Testament. He had been born blind, and, and Jesus healed him. And he's being interrogated by, by the uh, Sanhedrin. And he says, all I know is I used to be blind, but now I see. Uh, there's a picture of him here. You know, he's, he's touched by Jesus. He said, I, I don't know who this Jesus is. I don't know anything about him. But I tell you this much I know. I used to be blind, and now I see. That's, that's kind of how we are in this life. There's so much we don't know about God. I mean, the, the amount we don't know about God is... You know, beyond measure, but we do know some things. And worship looks like giving glory to God because he's worthy. Worship looks like giving glory to God because he's worthy. You see, what, what, what I want you to note this morning is that this psalm shows us what worship looks like. We wonder sometimes. We have worship wars in the church. We, we discuss it. David shows us what worship looks like. Worship looks like giving glory to God because he's worthy of our praise. What else does it look like? Look at verse 4. Verse 4, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. Teaching our children is a form of worship. We accomplish this primarily by, by telling them stories about what God has done, about his mighty acts of power. Wendy and I just came back from spending eight days at Star Lake, and, and we, we led the discussion there. And each evening with the kids, we looked at stories about children in the Bible, but we were looking at how these children fit into God's plans, huge plans, great plans, with little children. We're helping them understand God's mighty acts, his power. Is teaching is an act of worship. I, I'm slowly getting into a book that's written by some Christian reform professor, so it's slow reading. But he's basically explaining you can't do Christian education apart from worship. And you really can't do worship apart from Christian education. Teaching and worship are tied together. So First, we see that worship looks like giving glory to God. Secondly, worship looks like teaching our children. Uh, if you're feeling a bit worship deficient in your life, teach Sunday school. We've got spaces for you. See Justina before September. Don't wait. See her, because teaching is a form of worship, according to David. So we, we see that... that Worship looks like giving glory to God. It looks like telling people, teaching people about God. Now, what else does it look like? It looks like being silent before God. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. We, we know this verse. 
Worship looks like quiet, thoughtful, prayerful meditation. Look at verse 5. David says, I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Worship looks like quiet, thoughtful meditation. Now, before we tell the stories to our children or to our Sunday school class, the stories about God's power, we need to meditate on those ourselves. We need to take them in, internalize them. We need to think about them and ask questions about them. What does this story tell me about God? What does this story tell me about the world and the way the world works? What does this story tell me about me? Meditating prayerfully, thoughtfully. That's worship. So worship like, looks like giving glory to God. It looks like teaching. It looks like meditation. What else does it look like? Look at verses 6 and the first half of verse 7. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. Worship, we worship by telling our friends, well, that's yeah, quiet, thoughtful, prayerful. We worship by telling our friends about the awe-inspiring deeds of God, especially the ones that we see in the life of his son, Jesus Christ. But we also worship God by telling our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, what God has done in our life. This is John Newton, wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. His testimony was very simple. I used to be blind, but now I can see. You can worship God by telling friends about Jesus in a coffee shop, at a, at a Starbucks, at Tim Hortons. You can, it could be at a Salisbury house. It could be in the backyard. Anytime you start talking about God to other people, that is worship. Beautiful worship. Remember a couple of months ago in a sermon, we talked about telling others about Jesus is an act of worship. We're praising him. We're honoring him. We're, we're giving him glory because we're telling people, this is something good you should know about. The last thing that worship looks like is singing. Look at the second half of verse 7. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. Worship is about singing. Singing's always been a strong part of worship in, in, in the Christian church and, and Judaism. It will always be a strong part. We're going to be singing in heaven. If you don't believe me, read the book of Revelation where there's some little glimpses into heaven and you find singing about God, about his glory, about his majesty, about his greatness. So worship is about declaring God's worth because of his glory. It's a, worship is, can look like teaching other people about Jesus, about God. Worship looks like meditation. Worship looks like sharing Jesus with our friends and our neighbors. And worship looks like singing. Now David is worshiping in this psalm. There's no doubt about that. And in this psalm he refers to a story. He's showing us how this works. He refers to a story. Now he's writing for Jewish people who know this story so well, he doesn't have to tell them. All he's got to do is quote a couple of verses, and they know the story. Because that's exactly what he does. He quotes two verses that are the most quoted verses in the Old Testament. And everybody knows the story. Ah, but maybe we don't. 
But it's just showing us how you use a story to talk about the greatness of God and to reveal who God is. The story's from the book of Moses. It's about uh, the book of Exodus. It's about Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses was there getting instructions from God about worship. Did you know that? He was getting instructions from God about worship. What's the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. That's a worship instruction. He talks about how they're supposed to live. That's a worship instruction. As Paul says, present your body as a living sacrifice. That's worship. He talks about how to build the tabernacle. He talks about what to do in the tabernacle. He's talking about worship. And at one point towards the end of this, Moses asked the question that is in the heart of every worshiper. Everyone who wants to worship God, I think this question beats in their heart. And David say, or Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glorious presence. Now, the story then jumps over to the next chapter, chapter 34, because the Lord passes in front of Moses. And as he passes, this is what God says. Yahweh, that's his name, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He's using this little story without having had to back, back up a little bit. He uses the story without having to tell the story to help them understand worship and to help them see worship. He's worshiping God by repeating God's words. This is what God says about himself. This is why we worship him, because he is a God of compassion. He is a God of mercy. He is a God who's slow to anger, and fortunately for us, he is. He is a God of unfailing love and faithfulness. This is why we worship him. Now look at verses 10 to 13. Worship is not just for David, it's for everybody. All of your works will thank you, Lord. Everything he's created will thank him. And your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule through all generations. All of God's creation worships him. It's a theme explored more deeply in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. But worship especially flows through the community of God's people. Through meditation, through talking. Now let's practice this meditation thing for a minute. Okay? What I want to do is I want to read to you the next session, section of this psalm. And I'm going to read it a line at a time, like it was written. And I'm going to pause. And I want you to think about what was just read. In a worshipful way, think about it. What does this mean? What does it say about God? What does it mean for me? And, and we won't take a lot of time with this, but practice meditation. It's a form of worship. The second part of verse 13, the Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does.
Verse 14, the Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. Maybe in your meditation you remembered all the times that God had lifted you up when you felt bent down, beaten down. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. Verse 16, when you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. Verses 17 and 18. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. You notice how this has worked? Look at this next slide. David has taken us through and quickly shown us who God is. He's made all these declarations about God. And by meditating, we get to enter into those declarations, and they become our declarations about God. Yes, God keeps his promises to me. Yes, God is gracious to me. Yes, God helps me when I'm beaten down. 
Yes, God has provided for me my whole life. He feeds me. He, he's righteous. If God was only righteous, I'd be in trouble because I'm not, but he's kind. He responds to those who call to him. In verse 13, and, and I'm jumping around a little bit just to try to give you a feeling of how this worship works. In verse 13, G David declares this, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. This is because he worships the king for his faithfulness. Those are the two themes. This is probably the crux, the pivot point on which the psalm hinges. The king we worship is king forever. And he is faithful to us through all generations. He's sovereign. I read this week, this last week, about a, a mosque in Damascus, Syria. It hasn't always been a mosque. Before it was a mosque, it was a church. And before it was a church, it was a temple to a Roman god. And archaeologists can go through that structure now and point out which parts were Roman, which parts of the building were made by the Christians, and which part is the mosque. There is a section where there are three doorways that are closed off and no longer used. And, and the archaeologists believe that those were from the Roman temple. But while it was a Christian church, they were still using those doors, and this is the lintel over the doors, and someone had inscribed very carefully in Greek letters these words on that temple. They're taken from Psalm 145, verse 13, but changed slightly. Your kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The words are still there. It, it's not an easy time to be a Christian in the Middle East, especially in Iraq and especially in Syria. But here on this building, this ancient building in Syria, are words that are far, far older than the original building that says this truth, Jesus' kingdom lasts forever. Jesus reigns everywhere. This is the bottom line of, of why we worship and how we worship. We worship because Jesus is our king forever and ever, and we worship by declaring that he is king, that he is Lord, that we belong to him. Each generation, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. What is the greatest act of God in history? Any? Resurrection of Christ, which is all kind of a package deal. It's all that, that greatest act of God is a package deal. The incarnation of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus into heaven. That's God's great redemptive act. Now we, as worshipers, are supposed to declare the mighty acts of God. How do we declare this great redemptive act? Any thoughts? Share this story. As corporate worshipers, how do we declare this act? Excellent, excellent ideas. 
Excellent ideas. I'm trying to give you a clue. Communion. Communion is an act of worship by, we, by which and through which we declare God's great redemptive act. This is what we read in Paul's letter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And now listen. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, declare, announce the Lord's death until he comes again. This is what worship looks like giving thanks to God for what he's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. In some churches, there's a doxology that's part of communion. And we're actually going to use it our, ourselves. Uh, back up to the slide, okay? Emily, can you back up one slide? Should be a picture there. Yeah, this picture is uh, from a stained glass window, obviously. And you see the words, omnis honor et gloria. It is all honor and glory. Belongs to who? To Jesus. So in this eating and drinking, we are giving glory and praise to Jesus. And, and that's why these words are then used as, as part of the worship, uh, which we will say in just a few minutes, but put them on the screen now in the next slide. So that, in a few minutes, we're going to say these words, through him, Jesus, and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, be all glory and honor forever and ever. This is communion time. And at Elam, it's an open table. If you're here for the very first time and you know Jesus, we welcome you to join us in the eating and drinking at this table. We are, are going to, in a few minutes, have the, the elements, the, the, the bread, passed out, and then after that we'll hand out the, the, the cup. We ask you to hold on to them so that we can all eat and drink in unison. While they're being distributed, we're going to sing those words that I said were the most quote, quoted words in the Old Testament, the words that David quoted as God declared his own identity and person to Moses. We're going to sing those words, and then we're going to eat and drink together. So if the service will come now and Ashley and Curtis will come. Let's hear again as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. Let's hear again the words of institution. And meditate on these words as you hear them. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
when, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, our God and Father. He stretched out his arms on the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world and for us. And therefore we give thanks to you as we eat and drink. Amen. <laughs>